0: Well Leviticus 20.26 says you shall be holy to me for I the Lord am holy and have separated you from the nations. You shall be mine. As we uh, survey the Old Testament covenants we see that God is faithful to his word uh, to man. He ...had a clear purpose in starting to speak to Adam in the beginning... uh, ...and the first covenant that we looked at a number of weeks ago now... uh, ...this covenant of life. And in his purpose, he laid out what the purpose was for both men and women. Uh, He gave them purpose and identity. Although sin has corrupted all things... ...and we've seen that sin spreads throughout filling the world with violence and evil... Instead of what the true purpose was, which was to fill the world with the image of God. Uh, In the beginning, we saw in this covenant of life that man and woman were to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. In Genesis 6, we see the world is full with violence. Uh, The wrong thing has filled the world. Uh, God, yet in his graciousness, continues his covenant of life with a new Adam, Noah. Noah and a new creation, a uh, creation that has been uh, washed clean by the flood, and now we have a new Adam with a new creation, and we see God make the same covenant, uh, with some exceptions, with some expansion. We see the covenant was, be fruitful and multiply, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, saying that to Noah and his sons. Yet, the lusts of man's heart and the uh, desires for a great name among themselves sent them not to scatter across the globe, but to congregate in one area and to build for themselves a Tower of ba- uh, Babel. And the Tower of Babel is a, a, a tower of worship, a tower where they would worship the heavenly host, the stars, the moon, uh, and, and, and the powers that they would see in the sky. So rather than once again going forth and being fruitful and multiplying, filling the earth with the image of God, they go after the lust of their hearts. We see Romans 1 tell us that man was handed over to the lust of their heart. The nations wanted to worship other gods, these false gods, and therefore God handed them over. What we uh, must see is that we can't look at the Abrahamic covenant without understanding the Tower of Babel. Uh, I'm sure Cody did a great uh, job last week unpacking that for us, but we will continue to see how uh, the Tower of Babel plays out in the Abrahamic covenant uh, in this uh, passage as well. What we saw is that God scattered the nations uh, across the earth and he scattered them to serve other gods. So because they lusted after other gods, God said, fine, go for it. Here, have the other gods, go worship them. Uh, they are false. But then he comes to Abraham and he makes a promise to Abraham that he will make him a nation and he will be the nation that worships God Almighty. We'll see that unfold <coughs> in this passage. So as we look at God making a nation out of Abraham, Uh, we are going to see that his purpose is still the same. That the image of God will fill the earth. That God's people will spread across the globe and fill the earth with the character and the attributes of God seen in his image bearers. We're also going to look at circumcision and how circumcision points to Christ and our need for putting off the flesh and putting on Christ. Putting off the flesh and putting on Christ. That's Pretty much the aim of what we'll try to achieve this evening. So picking up in verse 1 of chapter 17, it says, "Uh, Abram was 99 years old when the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Well, if we were reading Genesis, uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, we would know that the last time Abram's age was mentioned was in chapter 16 when he had just, uh, ha- had a son, uh, through the slave woman and he- his name was Ishmael and he was, uh, Abram was 86 years old at that point. So 13 years, another 13 years has passed and he has now a 13 year old and he's still a sojourner, so he's not He hasn't possessed the land like God had promised him he would in in Genesis 12. And he only has one heir, and that heir is from a slave woman, not from his wife, Sarah. Yet the promise is that he will be a multitude of nations. The promise is that he will have uh, uh, descendants as many as the stars. When we read the covenants, or when we read the story of the Old Testament... We learn from history that God works at his own pace and in his own time, and we need to be okay with learning obedience through waiting. Uh, Abraham didn't ever in his life possess the land that God promised him. It was a generational promise. In fact, Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob never possessed the land. Uh, 400 years goes by until finally the great descendants... Or the many great descendants of Abraham come back to Canaan and take the land. We've got to see that God's story is working out over generations and God is still working things out over generations. He's not working it out in just our lifetime. He's doing things now, but he's also working it out throughout generations. 10, 20 years, 30, 40 years, or even a lifespan, 80 to 100 years, is really nothing to God. It's a short blip, and we see that so clearly as we read the, and survey the Old Testament. There's three uh, important phrases here in chapter in, in verse 1 of 17. Uh, God Almighty, walk before me and ble- be blameless. These are, uh, these are important as they, they, they state significant things about the covenant that God is making in contrast to what happened at the Tower of Babel. First of all, we see, "I am God Almighty." Uh, in other words, what He is saying: "I am God above all other gods." We need to be okay with the language about other gods. It's how God uses. Uh, it's how God refers to uh, fallen angels, Satan, and His demons. They are they are false gods. They they should be out there, as Hebrews says. Uh, As ministering spirits, helping the children of God to worship God. Instead, they are taking worship for themselves. And since they are taking worship for themselves, God has handed the nations over to them. Yet he is saying to Abram, I am God Almighty. The one that is making this promise to you, Abram, is the God above all gods. I am the one who created the invisible, uh, the visible, and the invisible. I am the one who made the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and every creeping thing. Uh, To state that He is God Almighty is to declare to Him that He is the absolute, the sovereign one. So we see that Israel is, or Abram is, going to become a nation who has the God of all creation as their God. This is the emphasis of the covenant which we'll see unfold as we work through this passage. He says, "To him walk before me and be blameless." To walk before God is to be entirely devoted to God Almighty. Have nothing to do with the other gods is the is essentially the warning here. Don't walk before idols, don't bow down to them, don't don't interact with them. Solely worship God Almighty alone. We'll see this unfold in the Mosaic law as we see many, many uh, laws that come around about what they should do with the other nations in Canaan uh, who worship other gods. And there's a great many warnings that if they interact with these other nations, they will start walking before other gods and not before God Almighty alone. He also says, be blameless. Be blameless. And this be blameless needs to be uh, taken in its place uh, after Genesis 15.6. Genesis 15.6 is the great statement and, uh, and and quoted in the New Testament that Abram's faith is counted to him as righteousness. God will now look upon Abram, although sinful, although uh, fallen short of the, the glory of God, he will look upon Abram as righteous. Yet he is still called To blameless living. He's still called to now live righteously. Notice that the call to live rightly happens after the means of his righteousness. The call to live uh, blamelessly happens after he is already told that his faith has been counted to him as righteousness. To live righteously, we first need to be made righteous. And this is what we see in Abram. It's what we see, of course, in Jesus Christ for us that our faith is in what Jesus has done. Abram's faith was in what Jesus will do. A person who is trying to live righteously in order to be counted righteous will end up coming to nothing. We are, by nature, totally depraved and need a transformed heart and mind in order to be obedient to God's word. We need to be made righteous and then we are called to faithfully live righteously or blamelessly. He's saying uh, what when he, when he is speaking like this, walk blamelessly or be blameless, it's, it's, it's in a similar way the New Testament speaks uh, in, in saying keep a close watch of your life. We know Paul says this to Timothy, keep a close watch of your life. Uh, righteousness has been counted to us, uh, but we are still called to walk in obedience to God. Uh, We are now called to have faithfulness in our life, which is what we will see uh, unfold in circumcision and how that relates to us as New Testament Christians. But continuing through this passage verse by verse, it says in verse 3 to 6, Then Abram fell on his face. God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations kings shall call come from you. Well, we see Abram respond rightly here. He falls on his face. If we are to encounter God in this way, the only right response is to fall down on our face and, uh, in reverent fear. We see this happen multiple times throughout the scriptures. And he's doing this before God Almighty, through the one who he has declared him to be. What God has done up, up to this point, up to 17, is he's made the promise in Genesis 12, uh, and the promise was leave your hometown and move a thousand or so kilometers to a land that I'll give you and I'll make you a nation. It was very, it was very simple, there wasn't much to it, but Abraham was obedient and he went. And then in Genesis 15, God cuts the covenant with Abraham. And he he physically cuts a covenant, which means he cuts animals, separates the animals either side. And we see not Abraham and God walk through it, but just God go through it. In other words, saying that if I break this covenant, I will become like one of the animals. Of course, being fulfilled in Christ, we broke the covenant and Christ wore the penalty of breaking the covenant. Uh, we see now that this uh, covenant is going to be more fully explained and and given a sign and a seal through circumcision. The covenant he confirms with Adam, and he will state it uh, multiple times uh, by re- repeating, "You are a father of multitude of nations. I will make you fruitful." He says. Uh, he says again in verse verse five, "A father of a multitude of nations, exceedingly fruitful." He repeats the same things emphasizing that abram from abram although he is 99 years old he is going to become a mighty nation now we we see this actually play out in israel's history we see this through isaac he has a son and then later jacob and jacob has 12 sons and by the end of genesis israel's 70 people only 70 people abraham's long gone but of course Israel does become a mighty nation and, and they are referred to as being as many as the stars. But we see in Galatians that the offspring that, that this covenant is always referring to is Jesus. Jesus is going to be the offspring of Abram, who, who is going to have a nation, a nations as many as the stars, people as many as the stars. Jesus is the one who is going to be the, the one who unites all the, all the nations together again. Uh, which is really what is being promised to Abraham here, that he is going to bring the nations uh, back together. So we see the language has also shifted from from the covenant of life, which was given to Adam and Noah, where it said, Be fruitful and multiply. Now the weight is on God. God is saying, I will make you. I will make you a multitude of nations. I will make you fruitful. We see this in the church today. Jesus is the one who says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Who is responsible for building the church, for bringing salvation to the lost? It is Jesus. We are going to see God succeed in what he set out to do, have a people for himself who live in a land and are under his rule. Of course, um <clears throat> Of course, this is uh, all all takes many generations, and that that call to be patient in waiting, I think, is, is, is clearly given to us in the Covenant series. To be okay that God may build his kingdom, not in our lifetime. It may take many generations after us, just as it took many generations after Abraham. We see in verse 7, it says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I'll give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. The covenant is for Abraham, Abraham, his offsprings throughout their generations. And notice it is an everlasting covenant. Everlasting covenant. So it doesn't end with Jacob or it doesn't end with Abraham's life. It continues on to Jesus. The covenant we see here made with Abraham continues on to Jesus and it continues to us today. Which is why John in his gospel says uh, that, that we are are children of Abraham, or those who are counted righteous by faith are children of Abraham. If we look carefully here, we see the emphasis put on the the covenant is that God will be their God. In verse 7, for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. We always need to, when thinking of Genesis, look back to that, that significant period of the Tower of Babel. When the Tower of Babel and the nations were scattered, we don't just pause and the story's completely shifted. Uh, we we realise that what God is doing is he's still going to claim this person, this one person who he is going to make a nation for himself. So Abraham, as an insignificant like man on his own, will be transformed into a nation by the power of God. And instead of having the false gods as a god, He will have God Almighty. The covenant to Abraham is that he will be their God. He will be their God. It's it's quite simple. They will live under his rule and reign, which we'll see uh, expanded in the Mosaic law, uh, the Mosaic covenant in in the next two weeks. That God is then going to give them, uh, about to give them land, and he's going to give them his law, which is ultimately what God's purpose is, to have a people who live in his land under his law. God's people in God's place under God's rule. And we see as we unpack the covenants, that expanding uh, out, we see that here as he chooses Abraham and he says, I will be your God. The question of who is your God has been unfolding since the fall. Uh, Of course, the deceit of the serpent in Genesis 3 was, did God really say he wanted to put doubt in Eve's mind? And then from Genesis 4 onwards, the question is of who will you worship? Will you, will you worship God Almighty or will you worship these false gods? Of course, we saw in Genesis 6 that the sons of God and the daughters of man had these Nephilim race and the Nephilim race were worshipped as more powerful and mighty beings. And then in Tower of Babel, we see them build a tower to the heavens and they're worshipping the stars and the moon. Abraham himself was a moon worshipper, according to Joshua. But Abraham now is called to walk before God and to worship him only. The covenant is that God's people will possess the land and have him as God. We see in verse 8, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession will be and I will be their God. Simply put, God's people will have a land and they'll live under God's rule and reign, As it was in the garden with Adam and Eve. What we are looking at towards with this covenant series is that God ultimately set out his purpose in Genesis 1 and 2 and he is continuing to bring about his purpose and his plan. In Hebrews 11, 9 and 10, we are called to ponder the faithful outworkings of these patriarchs. Abraham and, of course, his, his descendants, Isaac and Jacob. It says, By faith, he went to live in a land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has a foundation, whose designer and builder is God. Skipping down to chapter uh, the verse 13 in Hebrews 11 it says these all died in faith not having received the things promised but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth for people who speak thus may make it clear that they are seeking a homeland if they had been see- thinking of if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out they would have had opportunity to return but as it is they desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. We see that Babel was the wrong building. Babel was the wrong project to be working on. What the patriarchs were meant to, or what Noah was Uh, meant to send forth of course was that they would build uh, a place for god's worship as adam was meant to do in the garden of eden but didn't and now we see this promise to abraham that he is to leave a city and to go to a place that is going to become a city of god a a, a city built uh, whose designer and builder is god when was it going to happen well we're still waiting for it right We're still waiting for the kingdom of God to be fulfilled. So Abraham was looking to something that was many thousands of years after what he was doing. But in verse 15 of Hebrews 11, it says, If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. Israel did this. When we see Israel in the wilderness, all they kept saying was, Remember what Egypt was like? We had food in Egypt. We had meat in Egypt. All they wanted was to keep going back to Egypt. But Abraham, Abraham, their forefather, he didn't think like this, according to Hebrews 11. He didn't think about what was going on in Ur of the Kaldins. He didn't think about what was happening in his old pagan nation. He had his eyes and mind set on the city, the kingdom of God, that his offspring would one day bring and that is where his mind was set, according to Hebrews 11. We are called to have our minds set on God's ultimate outcome. We are called to think like Abraham, Isaac and Jacob did and to ponder what it would be like to be in a land like the Garden of Eden that had abundant, abundance of all goodness and was we lived under God's rule and reign. A land that didn't have sin in it. A land where we loved and enjoyed being obedient to God. What we notice in this covenant is that this is the hopefulness of Abraham, that Abraham has work to do. And sometimes in our evangelical world today, we don't like the word works. We don't know what to do with faith and works. But works is simply faithfulness or faithful living according to the promise. So the works of Abraham is that he didn't look back to his old land, but he could imagine what this land of Canaan would become. He longed for that and thought much about that. So that is what we see uh, faithfulness is. Faithfulness is works according to the promise of God. And we're going to see that unfold with circumcision, because circumcision carries a great weight for Abraham. If he isn't obedient to God here, he would be cut off. And we see that play out later in the Old Testament as well. So it says in verse 9, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generation. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. God's very next words in this covenant, after telling all of that he is going to do, he calls him to faithfulness, to act upon the covenant. For Abraham to keep the covenant, he and his offsprings and his generations after him must be circumcised. The covenant is that God Almighty will be their God and they will inherit the land. They will live in this land if they are obedient to God. Now, circumcision is a physical sign of a spiritual reality. It involves cutting off the foreskin of the male reproductive organ. This is important to understand because it's, it, it, it will emphasize multiple things. First of all, every descendant of Adam is polluted with sin. Every descendant of Adam, every descendant that comes from a man, which is everyone, it has sin in them. And, and, and this is one... One reason why the sign was on the male reproductive organ. The other reason is that we see the flesh is to be cut off and thrown away. And in in cutting off the flesh, there would be blood and the flesh was thrown away, cast off. Of course, this points to Jesus. Jesus is one day, or has for us, he has put off human flesh. He first of all put on human flesh dwelt among us, lived under the law of God, was faithful to God, was, walked before God blamelessly, and then he went to the cross and died in human flesh, putting off his flesh and pouring out his blood. The act of circumcision points to the cross. It reminds us that every Israelite has a father, has their father in Adam and the need for blood sacrifices and the need to put off the flesh of Adam. Our human bodies were once meant to endure forever in the Garden of Eden. But because of sin, we see sin spiral out of control. And in Genesis 6, God puts an end to uh, man living long and says man will only live 120 years. Of course, we know that all men die. We see that in the genealogy of Genesis 5. Such and such had this many children, he lived this long, and he died. And that is repeated over and over again. This flesh that we carry around with us today has to be put off because we inherited it from our forefather Adam. And circumcision points to this. John Calvin wrote, Moreover, it is probable that the Lord commanded circumcision for two reasons. First, to show that whatever is born of man is polluted, then that salvation would proceed from the blessed seed of Abraham. It was always pointing to the fact that sin had to be dealt with by being cut off. Either we were going to be cut off, or Jesus was cut off for us on our behalf. Colossians 2.11 confirms this, and it says, "In In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So we see the circumcision that we have received in Jesus Christ is that we have put off our fleshly bodies and we have put on Christ. The flesh is gone, the old is gone, and the new has come. If we read on in Colossians, it says, he after putting off the flesh, it also says that having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So we see this connection between our circumcision and baptism, both pointing to the cross, one's pointing forward to the cross, and one's pointing back to the cross. We were buried with Christ as we're buried under the water in baptism. We see this clearly uh, as an act, a very clear gospel act. What we must see is the importance of obedience. The importance of being faithful to this command. Abraham did. If Abraham didn't get circumcised, he would have been faithless, not faithful. And the very next verse, our last verse, is serious. In verse fourteen, it says, "Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant." The contempt of circumcision was a contempt of the covenant. If the parents did not circumcise their children, it was at their peril. We see this take place with Moses. Moses, in Exodus 4.24, has already been called by God. He's heading back to Egypt, back to his people, Israel, to bring them out of slavery. And God goes to put his, him and his sons to death. It says, At a lodging place, on the way, the Lord met him and sought, him, sought to put him to death. Then Sipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. So he let let him alone. We see the danger and the seriousness in Scripture of breaking God's covenant. It is a dangerous thing to make light of divine institutions and to, to live in neglect of them. I think in our evangelical world, we have struggled to take the seriousness of things like baptism and communion, uh, the signs and seals of the new covenant. But here, we are left with a serious question, that since we have faith through righteous, uh, have righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ, what does it look like if we, ourselves, or can we, ourselves be cut off? What warnings should we take from this ourselves in the New Testament? What does it look like to be faithful in the New Testament, uh, in the Christian faith today? In asking these questions, they're, they're, we have to hold a pretty significant tension. We are, we, and there's ditches on either side that we can fall in. The path we need to hold to, or the, the, the place we need to sit, is that faith is counted to us as righteousness. So faith in Jesus Christ, death and resurrection is counted to us as righteousness that will result in lasting sanctification or faithful obedience to God's will. So the path that we need to stay on all the days of our life is that faith counted to us as righteousness will result in sanctification and faithful obedience to God's will. This is why when we read the New Testament, there are many passages that echo the sounds of Genesis 17, 14. Passages like Galatians five twenty one, after listing a whole bunch of sins, it then says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Ephesians 5, 5. For, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. We could continue reading to 1 Corinthians 6. The question we have to ask is who who are the people uh, that can be cut off? Who who is Paul writing to when when he talks about those who will not inherit the kingdom of God? Well, of course he's writing to the church, right? Galatians is a letter to the church. Corinthians or Ephesians are letters to the church. It seems that God is saying that there are those who will identify as Christians who have not been born again and have not proved produce fruit of sanctification and faithful obedience. If we turn to what Jesus says himself in John fifteen one and 2, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit is taken away. Every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Notice the language here. It says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. There are branches that are apparently in Jesus, who have confessed faith in Jesus, who have been baptised, taken the sign of the new covenant, who come to the communion table week after week, who will be cut off. I think this is a great warning for us to ponder. It's clear that our it's clear from Hebrews 11 that faithfulness is actions according to the promises that God has given obedience according to God's uh, promises that he has laid out. Philippians 212 and 13 tell us, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed now so not only as in my presence but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The question I think Paul often asks of the church, with much encouragement at the beginning of his letters, but, and Peter and John also, is that are you truly, truly born again? Have you been counted righteous? And is that counting of righteousness now producing in you righteous living? Are you putting away the flesh as the, the cross of Christ points to? As circumcision pointed to? Have you buried the old self as baptism pointed to? And have you risen as a new creation and a living forth as obedient? Obedient to God Almighty, the God of our covenant. As we started in Leviticus 20, 26, You shall be a holy people to me. For I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the nations, that you shall be mine. Holiness set apart is the mark of God's people. It was the mark of Israel and it's the mark of the Christian church today that we should be different to the world, different to the nations. We should be holy, righteous, blameless before God. And we gain that. Through keeping fruit with a pre- keeping uh, bearing fruit with repentance, bearing th- fruit with repentance. Of course, we are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone. But that faith in Christ will produce for us a harvest of righteousness. May it be so. Let's pray. Holy Father, we see this everlasting covenant made to Abraham, ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Right now, Lord, we are so thankful that we live as those who get to look back at Christ, as Hebrews 11 tells us. And Lord, as we wait for your kingdom to be built, for your people to be called to yourself. Lord, we pray that we'll be faithful to the very end of our lives time here on earth. Will we purge the evil from among us through repentance and belief in you? And will we, will we be distinct, a distinct people set apart as holy and righteous to you? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.